If you're just joining us, we are walking through the Gospel of Mark as a church. The Gospel of Mark is one of the four Gospels found in the New Testament. It's an account of Jesus' life, uh, what he said, what he did, uh, who he is. And our passage today is uh, a parable. And it's a parable that's usually called uh, the parable of the tenants. But I think this puts uh, way too much emphasis on the tenants. This could be called the parable of the vineyard owner and his son, or even uh, the good vineyard owner and his beloved son. Uh, But before we get into the parable, let's keep the context in mind. Uh, Most of Mark's gospel has been a buildup. Jesus has been heading on a direction on the way to Jerusalem. And since chapter 11, he's arrived. He arrives at what we call the triumphal entry. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it's his way of saying, I'm the king. But he's coming to do a very different thing. On his second day, the second day of his itinerary, he goes into the temple and calls out mismanagement. He tries to shut it down. He says, you've made a horrid mess of my father's house. You've made it into a den of robbers. And it's a little foreign to us now, but the temple was the center of Judaism. You have to imagine something more like city hall than just a space where uh, religious people went together. And the protest that Jesus put on was at the center of their year. It was during the week of preparation for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of the whole nation. Hundreds of thousands of people were preparing and making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And this is the time of the year that Jesus says, no, 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 this whole thing isn't working anymore. It's beyond controversial. And so our, our passage today is the third day of Jesus in Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a parable. Last week was a parable in action. Jesus cursed a fig tree and it was a symbolic action of the temple coming to its end. This week it's a parable in words targeted toward the very leaders that have corrupted the temple's use. We're confronting the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And this group of people, they would have made up what was known as the Sanhedrin, the highest court of officials in Judaism. And so Jesus is telling this parable, we need to keep in mind, to the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And since Mark 3, 6, these are the very leaders that have been plotting his arrest and demise. And now they're out to destroy Jesus. They want blood. What he did in the temple is the boiling point. They are are past the tipping point. They're ready to put an end to him. And while there's a conspiracy brewing behind the scenes, they're also uh, confronting Jesus now in a public way. They want to know, at the beginning of our passage, where does Jesus uh, get the right to do these things? Who gave him the authority to do these things in the temple? And Jesus responds with a question. He says, all right, I'll tell you by what authority, but you answer my question first. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? And they're stuck. They say, well, we can't say from heaven because Jesus say, well, why didn't you believe John then? And we can't say from man because the people believe John was a prophet. And so we don't want to set ourselves against the people. And so they respond, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But just when you think that's that, Jesus is like, I will tell you a parable, however. And the parable might be about authority, and it might be about me, and it might not, but it might be, but it might not, but it probably really is about me and the authority I have for a temple. And so he 
gives this heavy-handed rebuke to these uh, elite class religious leaders who are distorting God's good things and oppressing God's people. That's our context. And so as, I, as we work through the parable this morning, there's one big idea I want to focus in on. Through his rejection, Jesus turns our shame into celebration. Through his rejection, Jesus turns our shame into celebration. So open up your Bibles if you've got one uh, to Mark. Uh, it's toward the back. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, everything you need will be on the screen this morning. Starting in chapter 12 of Mark, uh, verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. If you ask me to describe Julia, I could go on and on and on. I wouldn't even know where to start. I could talk about what a wonderful mother she is, but more than that, I could talk about how she's a source of strength in my life. I could talk about her boldness and yet also her gentleness, her beauty. I could go on and on and on about the goodness of, that is Julia Stern. Why? Well, I'm either obsessed, which is creepy, or I love her, and that's why I can talk about her in such great detail. Jesus kicks off this parable with a ton of detail about this vineyard. He loads it with, uh, with detail. This man, he planted it. He cared for it. He provided for it. He invested everything it needs. He gave it everything. He protected it. And he did this because he loves the vineyard. That's why we get so much detail. He loves the vineyard. But with this language, this vineyard language, it should make uh, the, the original hearer's ears tingle a little bit. Remember the figs from last week. Figs in Israel symbolized God's blessing and abundance. If you were sitting under a fig tree, so to speak, it was a sign that you were living the good life of God's blessing and abundance. Well, so did vineyards. And here, Jesus is also alluding to the prophet Isaiah. And those hearing the parable, remember, they're religious leaders. They know the Bible. They know the illusion. They would pick up on it. And a, a vineyard is a good sign. The, the man in this parable, he's blessed. He's got a vineyard. Not only does he have a vineyard, he can afford to go away and share his vineyard with others. This guy's living the good life. This vineyard, though, is also in Isaiah 5, and they would know this. It represents there God's steady love toward his people his beloved vineyard, his beloved people, blessing and abundance. And those listening to Jesus would know this, but they would know more specifically that Isaiah 5 is not just a picture of God's love for his people. It's actually about God's people being led astray by unworthy and untrustworthy uh, religious leaders. And so Isaiah 5 is really a condemnation about those who have mismanaged God's people. So it shouldn't surprise anyone then that a parable is being constructed where the tenants aren't trustworthy. They aren't good. They mismanage the vineyard for their own gain. This is the backdrop that Jesus is setting. 
And we read in verses 3 through 5 that the owner, he wants to check in on his vineyard. He wants to enjoy some of the fruit. And so he sends a servant. He gets beat up. They push him around. They send him back empty-handed. You know, well, maybe it was just miscommunication. And so they set, he sends another servant. And this one, uh, they punch in the head and they treat shamefully and send him back empty-handed. And the owner, he won't give up. And so he sends another, another servant. And this servant, they kill. And this just keeps happening over and over. Some servants, they just beat up. Some, they kill. The tenants, they're staging a coup. They're overtaking the owner's beloved vineyard. They're refusing to give to him what is rightfully his. If he wants some fruit, it's his. They should give it to him. They're scorning his authority. They want his vineyard, but for their own benefit. Now, in this culture, in this time, in this place, they, the people listening would be thinking, this is an insult to the owner. You know, this constant uh, humiliation and refusal to recognize his name, these tenants very much are trying to shame publicly this owner. It's an insult. We get that. But it's also likely that the leaders listening to Jesus at this point see themselves more as the owner than the tenants, and they see Jesus as the tenant. Well, look at you. You've come into our house you're trying to make a mess of our house. Who do you think you are? But we have to remember, all of this is taking place in an honor-shame-based culture that uh, has def- different emphasis on the status of one's name. This really, really matters. The owner would be expected. He would be honor-bound to deal with the matter. Their reputation in society would depend on it. If he doesn't deal with this well, he'll lose all credibility and his uh, inheritance and his wealth will go with it. And so the expectation would be a heavy-handed, violent response. Now think about these religious leaders. They feel shamed by Jesus. They feel that their vineyard, their temple is being attacked. They feel justified in trying to do Jesus' harm. Why? Not just because they're vindictive, but because they're bound by honor. They get their status and their power from the temple, and so they're trying to hold on to it. So the question is, what will the owner of the vineyard do with this injustice? What will he do? What is he going to do about what's been done to his servants, about the shame cast upon his name? And as the conflict escalates, we get this picture into the owner's inner thoughts. I love this. We get to see what's driving him. Look at verse 6. He had still one one other person, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. He's got one more option, a beloved son. And as a last resort, his last offering of peace before coming himself, he sends his son to these beloved tenants. This is how he's going to deal with the injustice. And it's hard not to cringe. Like, what? No. No, don't send your beloved son to these scoundrels. What are you thinking? Do you not see what they've done? How could you send your beloved son to these enemies? What's the owner's reasoning? What does he say to himself? They will respect my son. Why should their response to the son be any different than his servants? Part of it is the, the different significance the son had in that culture. The sun symbolized the future. It, the sun symbolized everything, especially a firstborn son, let alone a beloved only son. 
The Son also represented the fullness of the Father. And that's what makes this course of action all the more risky. Given this track record of these tenants, the murder and the rebellion, couldn't we call the Father foolish? Why would you send your beloved and only Son, your future, to these people? You know, the owner, he could rightly hire an army or the authorities to execute these tenants, but he doesn't go in that direction. And it doesn't mean that he's foolish just because he's overlooking the injustice temporarily. You know, the humiliation of his servants, their shaming, the shaming of his name, that's all on his mind and heart. He's not emotionally detached from the insult. But the owner decides, even despite what he has felt and the shame that's been cast upon him, to send his beloved son anyway. The son is sent to the vineyard alone, unarmed, without an entourage, and he goes to meet vicious and rebellious men who are waiting for him. But the owner says, they'll respect my son. And the key word is respect. Uh, The original word actually carries connotations of shame. What what it's really saying is, uh, I'll send my son, and they'll see his special status, and they will feel shame. They'll feel ashamed of how they have shamed me. They'll respect my son and in turn repent. This is the hope of the father in sending the son. Despite all that's transpired then, despite all the rebellion, all the pain, all the humiliation, all the lives lost, all the suffering, he is still trying to mend the relationship. He is still trying to reconcile with these rebellious tenants. And he's not unaware of the risk, nor is the beloved son, but he offers another chance anyways. It might seem foolish, but this is what Jesus is saying. In our world, grace often looks foolish. So even though some of Israel's most influential and important leaders have become corrupt, God isn't quick to give up on them. But then we go from the perspective of God uh, or the, sorry, the perspective of the owner, uh, spoiler alert, and then to uh, the perspective of the tenants. Look at verse 7. The tenants say to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The tenants see the beloved son coming and they think, easy target. You know, and we get this clear look into their motives. The inheritance, it'll be ours if we do away with this son. They don't want to be tenants. They want to be owners. And in their words, we hear all sorts of things, a desire for unjust gain, scheming, wickedness, a plot of murder, and they follow through with it. Look at verse 8. And they took the beloved son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They kill him shamefully. They threw or cast his body out of the vineyard. It's a public shaming. It's a sign of deep disrespect. This would be as shocking as if someone had died in our streets and everyone just left the body there. This would be disrespecting to the dignity of that person's humanity. But then Jesus points the finger very quickly and he says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And it's the question we've been asking, and now it's amplified. The owner, he's been showing grace upon grace upon grace, and he hasn't treated the tenants the way they deserve, but now they've scorned this profound act of graciousness. The tenants have killed the beloved son, and Jesus asks the question, what do you think he should do? And he doesn't give them a chance to respond. Jesus says, here's what he'll do. 
The owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The tenants think they'll gain an inheritance, but ultimately they're gaining their own destruction and death. And that's it. The parable's over. It's a heart-wrenching parable about the death of a beloved son and how an owner offered grace upon grace upon grace to undeserving, rebellious tenants until he finally had to come with justice and judgment. What a doozy of a parable. And before the leaders listening to Jesus can catch their breath, Jesus anchors this parable with a real zinger from Scripture. Psalm 118. It's a psalm that broadly celebrates the return of a rejected king. And yet here are the verses Jesus pulls from it. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. I can tell you're all architects and specialists in ancient building. Uh, a cornerstone, uh, just in case you don't know, uh, was a structural stone. It was the key uh, foundational stone to a building. Uh, it, it was the capstone, so to speak. And uh, it was really important to the integrity of the building to have the right stone. If it was uh, compromised in any way, if it wasn't structurally sound, your whole building was at risk. And so if the, if the cornerstone was cast aside and then you realized you had picked the wrong stone and now you're going back to the rejected stone, this signifies a massive oversight. A massive oversight. How could you have rejected the cornerstone? What were you guys thinking? Now let's go back to our context for a bit. Jesus enters into Jerusalem like a king. But like part of Psalm 118, this king is rejected. This parable is being told to leaders who are rejecting him, rejecting his authority, plotting his death, Jesus knows this. He's not unaware of this. He knows they're going to kill him. So the psalm, it adds extra weight and punch to the accusations of the parable. Uh, in other words, Jesus say, by rejecting me, you're rejecting the foundational structure of the temple you're so desperately trying to defend. I am the cornerstone. This doesn't work without me. I'm the rejected king who will return triumphant. What Jesus is saying to these leaders of the temple is that you want the temple to be something other than what it was meant to be. The temple, it existed for God. He's the center, but you want to be the center. You want to use the temple for your own prestige and power. You want to take what isn't yours and make it your own. You see, they're still mistaking themselves as owners of the temple when they're just tenants of it. And more so, they're mistaking the vineyard as the temple. The vineyard is God's people. These leaders have become more concerned about the temple than the temple being of service to God's people. This is what Jesus is saying. And what's so interesting is for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, people understand a parable. It's not cloaked. Verse 12, it says, they understood that this parable was told against them. They get it. They get that this parable cuts straight into the motives of their hearts. They're the terrible tenants. They're irresponsible. They're greedy. They're conniving. They're murderous. They're trying to steal what isn't theirs. And they're being warned that Jesus is the last act of grace from God. If they reject and kill Jesus as they attend, all that will remain for them is judgment. As Jesus puts it, he will come and destroy the tenants. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the last chance. I'm the last shot. I'm the last opportunity to receive grace, to get right with God before he comes and executes a right and good justice and judgment against all of those who've rebelled against him. But they don't repent. They understand the parable and yet they don't repent. They just press in even harder into their efforts to destroy Jesus. They go on playing their part in the parable. Now, of course, this leads us to ask, what's our part in the parable? You might even be feeling a little relieved. Like, well, I'm not a religious leader. Phew, I'm off the hook. Sorry, Alistair. This one's all you. Uh, and certainly, those in leadership in God's church, those tasked with the work of caring for God's people and their well-being are entrusted with a great and heavy responsibility and will be held to a higher account. So I've spent much of my week asking how much of my time and devotion is to the name St. Peter's fireside versus the people or my own goals and aspirations versus faithfulness to God. This parable, of course, challenges religious leaders. But here's the thing. Nobody escapes this parable. Nobody. Because the motives of the tenants are true in every single human heart. What motivated them? Look again, verse 7. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. If you want to get really depressed, go to Google and type inheritance. And the first autocomplete sentence is theft. And if you Google inheritance theft or stolen inheritance, the sort of stories that you can discover of how people, related or unrelated, manage to steal someone else's inheritance, they're heartbreaking. And it's frequent. And you might be thinking, well, that would never happen to my family. That's what they all say. And I'm sure some of you here have seen what an inheritance can do to your family. Stealing an inheritance is not some hypothetical. What Jesus is proposing in this parable isn't some outlandish out idea like, oh no, we would never steal an inheritance, not us. This is common of the human experience. Now, the absurdity of this passage is that the tenants are trying to steal an inheritance that they have no claim to. But let's not be mistaken, even if you have a claim to an inheritance, it's always a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was passed on to you. And so the parable shows that there's something in our hearts that wants to take what isn't ours. And the tenants in particular, they didn't want the owner, and yet they expected all the benefits of the land. So I want to do a little thought experiment. If you could have anything, anything at all in the world right now, anything what would you have? What would you ask for? And you could have it. What would you ask? You know, would you ask for happiness, uh, a long life, success, a new car, an all-inclusive vacation, minimal to no conflicts in your life, family, would you ask for children, a spouse, perfect health, justice and peace throughout the world, any noble people here, a Snickers bar, now, if you could have anything at all, what would you ask for? I know exactly what I would ask for. I would ask for like 25 acres of land away from the city on the edge of a mountain with a house and a pit where I can like grill barbecue 
and like a little chapel to make it somewhat religious that you could call visit me at if you want. Uh, that's what I would ask for. I love you, but I got to get away sometimes. Uh, would you ask for something, and looking at what you would ask for, something that resembles what we would call the good life? And if you got it, if you got what you asked for, what would you use it for? Who would benefit from it? But here's the real heart of the matter. Would you be content to settle for the gift of a good life without the giver? Are you content to settle for a good life, enjoying all the benefits of what you can find here and now if God is nowhere to be found? Are you content to enjoy the earth and all it has to offer without knowing God? If so, you want the creation over the creator. You want the inheritance without the benefactor. Or is your one request, your ultimate desire, if you could have anything at all, would be to know God and be known by him. If you could have nothing else but this, would you be content? Would it be a good life? Would it be a good life? And that's the struggle, isn't it? The good life, it's more immediate and it's good. And so we wonder, like, why do we need God? Sure, you might have some bumps along the way, some lulls, but you'll go on telling yourself, life is good, and that good life is to be had, even if it remains around this elusive corner that never seems quite to arrive. But without God, even the very best life filled with very good things will be fleeting in the end. Now, you might reject God because you think God won't give you what you want, or that he'll actually take what you want away. Or you might be worried that if you follow God, you won't be able to enjoy life to the fullest or use things the way you want to use them. But the truth is that you can't enjoy life to the fullest. You can't know the abundance of goodness if you don't know the author of all of these things. Because you're ultimately settling for an inheritance that will perish, that will end. You're settling for the things of the earth, even good things of the earth that will come and will go but there's a better inheritance available than just a good life without God. There's a better inheritance available than just enjoying the creation without the creator. The tenants rejected the owner and killed his beloved son. Have you rejected Jesus? Have you ever accepted him? Have you accepted him, but dethroned him from being the center of your life? Is he somewhere on the periphery? Does he have to stay outside the walls of the vineyard of your heart? Have you rejected Jesus? All of this is a form of rejection. It's just taking different shapes and forms. Recent studies, I find this so fascinating, have shown that rejection piggybacks on physical pain pathways in the brain. So fMRI studies show that the same areas of the brain become activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. And to do this, they've hooked up people, right, and showed them photos of their exes, which is just mean, and it, it triggered the pain center of their brain. In other studies, they've shown uh, that we can relive and re-experience social pain more vividly than physical pain. And other studies have mapped how rejection creates uh, surges of anger and aggression within the brain. Rejection is this unique kind of pain. We know this. God knows it all the more because we've rejected him over and over and over again. 
But in the pain of rejection, God doesn't respond to us with anger and aggression. Even though we've rejected him in all sorts of ways, he shows us grace. And we keep talking about grace. What is this grace? What does it look like? Think through the parable with me. Grace is God patiently enduring rejection. Grace is God withholding his anger and offering forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. Grace is God showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. Grace is the fact that God loves even his enemies. That's the picture of grace in this parable. Which means God isn't just a God of second chances, but third chances and fourth chances and thousandth chances on this side of eternity. Innumerable chances. And we know this because God sent his beloved son, grace upon grace, the most supreme act of grace God could show us. He sent his son into a world that was rebellious and plotting his demise. And his appearing is initially meant to cause us shame. And I know that sounds strange. God sent his son into the world, his only beloved son, so that whoever might see him might feel shame. Like, Alistair, what are you talking about? Why would God want us to feel shame? Why would he want us to feel like there's something wrong with who we are? There's something wrong in us? Because there is. There's something awry within us that desires the creation more than the creator. There's something within us that wants a good life more than actually a relationship with God. There's something within us that makes us want an inheritance that isn't even ours. It's wrong. It's shameful. And we've rejected the good king, the beloved son, and we continue to cause deep pain in the father's heart every time we reject him. But the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. And our shame can be turned into celebration. Look again at verse 11. Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Jesus is the rejected stone who becomes the cornerstone. And what does the psalm say? This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. In other words, it's cause for celebration because through the pain of his rejection, we've been accepted. Through his rejection, we've been shown grace. Psalm 18, 118, remember, is a celebratory psalm of a rejected king returning and being made center again. Which means that when Jesus returns and becomes our center, our shame melts away and it's replaced with celebration. But what are we celebrating? First, we're celebrating his resurrection because he was rejected and killed and yet he rose and he is alive. And we're celebrating that he gives us a better inheritance. Scripture says we become co-heirs with Christ. St. Paul puts it this way, having nothing, nothing, yet possessing everything. When he becomes our center, we're, we're experiencing the God who is alive. We're experiencing Christ who is risen and alive, who makes us co-heirs of everything. Eternal life, new creation. We might have nothing in the world, but if we have him, we possess everything. Everything, an inheritance that cannot be robbed, an inheritance that will not decay, an inheritance we do not deserve, and yet an inheritance that has been graciously given to us. And through him, here is our biggest inheritance, our greatest asset, belovedness. Your shame can never 
outweigh how much God loves you and only his love will remove your shame and give you a self-worth as a beloved child of God. But more so, that will turn you from anxiety and depression into celebration because of what he's done for you and how much he loves you. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter if you've rejected Jesus, no matter if you're failing to follow him, no matter if you still have questions and you're not even really sure about this whole thing, our God is the God of thousandth chances. Our God is the God of thousandth chances. So you can bring your shame to Jesus and he will give you cause for celebration and your shame will melt away. But we also have to hear the warning of this passage. Jesus is the last act. Jesus is the last act of God's supreme graciousness towards us. And without him, if we go on rejecting him, there will only be justice and judgment in the age to come.